0: And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 417, Interview with Craig Nelson about his latest book, The is for Victory, Franklin Roosevelt's American Revolution, and the Triumph of World War II. Mr. Nelson, the author of Pearl Harbor, From Infamy to Greatness, and The First Heroes, The Extraordinary Story of the Doolittle Raid, America's First World War II Victory, comes on to explain how President Franklin Roosevelt not only brought the country out of the Great Depression, but helped steer a course that would revitalize the country's armed forces, readying for a day that all hoped would never come. He also forced his fellow citizens to ask themselves, what kind of country did they want to be? Mr. Nelson, thank you very much for joining us.
1: It's an honor. This is one of my favorite
0: podcasts. You're doing a fantastic job. Thank you sir I'm just trying to keep up trying to keep up with you so I'm so glad that you agreed to come on the show because as of yet, believe it or not, I haven't really covered the home front in in the United States yet. But after after reading your book, I think it's fair to say that uh, President Roosevelt, FDR, found the country one way when he first came into office, and he left it very different, not unlike Augustus in the city of Rome. I was hoping you could expand on that about generally what your book is about and what FDR was trying to do.
1: Well, I think the best way to understand this book, even though it's called *Views for Victory: Franklin Mm -hmm. Roosevelt's American Revolution and the Triumph of World War II*, the real way to think about it is that it's really about Americans putting aside all their differences and rising as a powerful group to address an existential threat, meaning both the Great Depression and Adolf Hitler. And Roosevelt was the Depending on how you want to look at it, the circus <laughs> ringmaster or or the or the wily politician—you can look at it either way—who right. who, who oversaw and sort of inspired all this. But it's really the sort of miraculous part of this story is that in 1933, when he comes into the off, into office, it's pretty much the worst moment in American history. Really, 25 percent unemployment, uh, uh, people going through garbage dumps looking for things to eat, people tearing mm. up pieces of wood in their house to be able to make a fire. I mean, really right. excruciating. period. And he pushes through all this legislation that fixes most of it, but doesn't fix the unemployment. And then in 1938, uh, Hitler gets appeased by England and France with pieces of Czechoslovakia. And Roosevelt reacts very harshly to this and thinks this is really terrible and really sees uh, Hitler as an imminent threat to the Western Hemisphere, so he puts into the, uh, the works this program to dramatically expand airplane production in both the uh, for both the United States and for England and France, who are our allies at the time. And this little thing becomes the seed of the Arsenal of Democracy, which is the secret weapon that beat the Nazis in World War II.
0: Yeah, I love that. And and I'm just going off memory here. I love there was a certain phrase in your book. Uh, Well, first of all, you are a master of a turn of phrase. I appreciated that very much in reading it. But there was something about, you know, there's, there's um, Prussian superiority on the battlefield, at least as far as their mindset. But on the other hand, there's the ability to build trucks. And as you say in the book, trucks won. (laughs)
1: This is, this is one of my favorite stories, and I can't find down the guy who I couldn't track. I spent weeks trying to track down the guy who originally said this. And right. if, if anyone knows, please phone in and let us uh, <laughs> please, uh, uh, get yeah. in touch and let us know. Please. Okay, so uh, World War II can be easily seen, as for those of us who are enthusiastic about this subject, it could easily be seen that the Japanese thought they would win because of their Bushido ethic of never forgive, never surrender, never say die. And the Germans thought they would win because of their Prussian history of military efficiency and and preparedness and training. Mm -hmm. And the Americans thought they would win because they had the most trucks, and (laughs) trucks won.
0: (laughs) Yes. Because I've said several times, logistics may not be sexy, but it gets the job done. You know, it allows you to emphasize and focus your, your firepower. And that's what battle pretty much is all about.
1: I was really blown out of my mind when a military analyst very casually said to me, you know, on the battlefield, logistics, is strategy for lunch. And I thought, what <laughs> <laughs> a military historian has been doing for the past 20 years that I've been yeah. in the business, oh, only doing, then the admiral did this, and then the general
0: commanded that. Exactly. Or, where's the story about shipping products to the front right line? Where's all the quartermasters who should have books written about them and all that good stuff? Yeah. yeah. No, I, I am on the same page. So you kind of touched on this already, but as FDR is at the center of of your book, I kind of want to weave some questions uh, through him. But what I found after reading your book was that... What he was facing was certainly, and and, and trying to solve it, it wouldn't be easy, it wouldn't be immediate, but when I read about one, he went into uh, the office trying to stay away from the ideas of his predecessor, didn't really walk in with specifics, and you touched on the banking situation, but if you could give us an idea as far as unemployment, banks, things like that, Uh, I was reading about Hooverville shantytowns, I mean... On the ground, things were pretty bad on March 4th, 1933, when he has his first inaugural ceremony.
1: Well, probably my favorite Great Depression story Mm -hmm. is about a little girl in school, and she suddenly starts crying. And the teacher says, what's wrong, honey? And the little girl says, I'm just so hungry. I'm so hungry. I can't stop thinking about it. I'm so hungry. Right. And the teacher says, well, you know, if you need to, you can leave school and go home and have something to eat. And the little girl says, I can't because it's my sister's turn to eat.
0: Oh, yes.
1: And, and you know, there are so many stories like this and people can't, don't really, you know, we think of the Great Depression as sad men in overcoats waiting in line. Well, yes. It, so much more gruesome and horrible than that. The the really incredible moment to me, uh, the great moment is actually when um, Roosevelt first comes into office and I think uh, I believe it's 10,000 banks have failed. And yes. so uh, certain states, there isn't single a single operating bank in the entire state and people have lost their life savings in this and everyone is panicking. And wow. right after he gets into the office, he goes on the radio and the announcer says, President Roosevelt would like to come into your home and have a little chat with you, <laughs> like sitting next to your fire, just just speaking to you like a neighbor. And right. Roosevelt comes online, he says, you know, banks don't just don't take your money and keep it in a vault, they invest it. Yeah. They're making more money for you. And it's much better for you to have it in the bank than to have it in your matches. And the only thing that's a mess right now is fear. You've got to stop being afraid. We have to defeat fear together and you've got to cut it out. And that night, um, because of course, the whole banking crisis was based on people becoming hysterical and pulling all the money out and causing this horrible chain reaction. And that night, the new The Roosevelt administration Treasury Department spent something like 72 hours nonstop trying to figure out where they needed to send cash to support banks to keep more from failing. And by the next morning, they realized they didn't have to do any of that because the entire run on the banks just with that one speech he gave on the radio had stopped. Oh, my God, it's power. How powerful a media performer he was. And and you can really see that radio at that time was what Internet is like today. He exactly. had such a commanding and he was the star of radio. And that was his great ability to govern was his influence on America.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think I appreciated it fully until I read your book. And again, it's kind of hard for, let's let's say like you're a 17 year old today, the idea, the very concept of the radio being the biggest cutting edge technology, but it allowed FDR, and you say this in your book, it allowed FDR to come into people's homes. And it was, it was like he was sitting there with you and he was breaking it down. He was explaining the banks. He was explaining mortgages. He was explaining how all this stuff works. And even though some of the people probably knew this already, having the president tell you about it, it calmed fears down. It's like, okay, this is surmountable if we all stay calm.
1: It was really his great, great talent. I mean, I like to tell people that... Um, Roosevelt is the greatest politician in American history, and I mean that in all senses of the
0: word. <laughs> Good and bad. <down. laughs> a, a,
1: a real ball breaker. But anyway, but, yep. but one of the things that comes up again and again and again was that he didn't just fix people's day-to-day economic problems. He ennobled them. He made yes. American people reach to be better versions of themselves. And, and in a yeah. certain way... <clears throat> The, he, in, in many ways, he reminds me of Reagan, where he's constantly happy and optimistic and upbeat, and he gives that feeling to everybody else. So, for 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 recent more recent presidents, Reagan sort of did that too, and right. in in his in his general affability and friendliness and down home sense, I think he picked that up from Roosevelt, because Roosevelt was the president when he was a kid. So, so um. <clears throat> but but the really incredible thing is to hear him uh, frame arguments in this fundamental way and make people think, we can really be good people doing these things if we want. And it really worked. It right. really, really worked. Uh,
0: you You bring up an interesting point because when he first comes into office in 1933, I mean, it's like, Could it possibly get any worse? I mean, they, like you said, things are, the the land was just devastated economically. But not only was he trying to work on uh, uh, unemployment, he was trying to work on everything else as far as, you know, um, the conservation to get people uh, jobs and things like that. But like you just touched on a second ago, he was, I I think at first, maybe passively, and then as the years went by more aggressively, he said his tone is, we're going to get through this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what kind of country? Do you want to be a part of? what what kind of people do you want to be? Do you want to be nasty? Do you want to be surly, or should we work together? I mean, he was able to give it a moral dimension besides just the day to day economics. It,
1: it's something we really haven't seen in a long time. And mm-hmm. it, it's sort of like the the one thing that I feel is missing. Uh, from politicians today, that right. they do not have this sense of how to make people feel good about themselves and how to make people want to be even better than they are now. And exactly. it's really a shame.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And if I could, this was early on in your book, and it just shocked me. So I want to mention something real quick. So so the situation in America is quite dire. It's dire all over the world. People are, are hopeless. And there are a few people, let, let's you know, a, a kind of extreme politicians and personalities in the country. They have very different ideas about how to solve the problem. And I just want to share with the listeners a couple of these. There was one politician who said, "I know, let's fire all the women in the country and give those jobs to men, so men can support their uh, families. Things will go back to the way they were, and everything will be fine." Well, that's that's not exactly fair to women. Another guy said. Let's send the 12 million African-Americans that we have in this country back to Africa. Again, most of them had never been to Africa because they're descendants. And the last one one I'll mention is one gentleman wanted to – and I don't know the best way to – he he was a retired army general. He wanted to eliminate – all the elderly Americans. So there wouldn't be all these surplus um, mouths to feed, I guess. But the point is, things were so dire in 1933. There are some pretty extreme ideas to try to match the extreme problems that they're in.
1: It was really really a crazy, desperate time. And I like to say that when people are desperate, they will do anything. Yes. And that was really where people were at that time. They were they were just desperate and they were just crazy. And but a lot of the things that they did were so interesting because uh Roosevelt said that if he just would experiment with anything. He would try anybody's idea yes. and he just do all these different things. And he said, if I'm successful 60% of the time, I'll be happy. And What yeah. politician would say that now? Yeah, know? they
0: they wouldn't have the courage to say that. Right.
1: They wouldn't have the courage. And, and also one of my favorite lines in the book that mm-hmm. I really blew me away with, uh, he, he proposed so much legislation to fix every single thing caused by the Great Depression. <laughs> and this, this torrent came up to Capitol Hill where all the uh, senators and, and reps had to vote on it. And one congressman said, it reads like the first chapter of Genesis. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, God. Oh, that's good. Um, I, 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 do, I do I do like that very much. Um, so let, let me do this. So, so let's get a little dark. So FDR has sworn in, but the very next day, Hitler has his electoral victory. The Third Reich is a reality at this point. Now, all the problems we know are coming into the future. But for right now, I mean, I'm not even sure if Hitler was a blip on FDR's radar because he's got so much going on. But could you give us an idea... Um, and and whatever level of detail you want. Maybe some of um, what uh, uh, FDR was trying to do during the first 100 days. And if you could introduce us into some of the the players that worked with him, because as brilliant as he is, no one person can do anything alone. And you have to have loyal advocates. What did, what did you call them in the book? A dollar a year men who stepped forward to try to help the country.
1: Right. One of the things that I always thought was, Uh, amazing after learning Mm -hmm. all this is the fact that uh, we're all taught, maybe not anymore, but we were all (laughs) taught that uh, Roosevelt uh, was two guys The first Roosevelt was the New Deal guy, and he was this wild, crazy man who was doing all this stuff with the economy, and who knew where it would end? And and a lot of people don't like that New Deal, Roosevelt. And then there was when the war Roosevelt, who was apparently a completely different person. So (laughs) one of the things I... This is literally how history has been taught to us, as far as I know, for like 70 years. But but as far as I could tell, uh, he was only one person, and then in fact, a lot of the New Deal went to Winning World War II, and and part of it was that uh, in various programs, he united forces with American businessmen and the military to try and coordinate the economy. And all of this would come into play later. <clears throat> and then yes. he gave federal bureaucrats in the New Deal had experience of building the Hoover Dam, the Golden Gate Bridge, the Lincoln Tunnel, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the Grand Coulee Dam. All of these, this huge infrastructure that they did. So Mm -hmm. when it came to Normandy, they were all ready to do something like Normandy after building (laughs) the camp. I mean, it's sort of incredible when you start adding it all up because they needed that kind of management experience. They needed to establish relationships with uh, corporate figures. They needed to sort of unify the country to get the economy on track and then to get the country on track to defeat Hitler, who was beating the shit out, oh sorry, beating <laughs> the hell out of everybody else. So, yeah. uh, uh, and and you can see this forward momentum beginning at the very beginning. But but sort of one of the most amazing things to me was that after the sort of hundred day period of his first period in office, right. where he has everything going and everything has been passed and everything is in effect, Franklin Roosevelt rents a sailboat and (laughs) takes his family sailing back to Campobello. Right. And there's all these pictures of him on the newsreels, on the, because you, you got your news from going to the movies then. There are all these pictures of him on the newsreels. jaunty with his cigarette soaking. Okay. Campobello, everyone in America knew, was where he contracted polio and where he became paralyzed.
0: Right. And here he
1: is, sailing back to Campobello. Oh, Jaunty, everything's changed now. It's a new day in America. And people just lost their
0: minds. <laughs> they <Yes>. really
1: completely... <laughs> It, it just took the weight off their hearts to see this happening. It was, It's was just brilliant, some of these things he did. Hey,
0: everyone. Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination, with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com The number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com That's YahooFinance.com Right. And, and I think FDR being, let, let's be respectful, the wily politician that he was, you know, you, you gain a certain amount of political capital when you win an election, but that doesn't last forever. You've got to move. you got to move fast, you know, strike while the iron's hot. And he did. And, and the. It's going to take a lot of time or it's going to take some time for this legislation to settle down and to to be a more cohesive thing. But he has started already. He's done an amazing thing in the first hundred days and he's trying to protect people. We don't you know, obviously, we don't have to go into all of the the programs that he set up. But the one person who impressed me the most was Francis Perkins. Um and she when she, let's see when she walked in and FDR is like okay so what do you want she's like I want a 40 hour maximum work week I want a minimum wage I want unemployment insurance I want disability insurance and and other things and and FDR is probably going we are in the middle of an economic meltdown and you want all these things but guess what before it was all over with she got those and so much more. And he liked people who came on who were aggressive, who, you know, fought for themselves as well.
1: There's a really amazing uh, quote about how uh, one of his speechwriters says that FDR seem to enjoy hiring difficult people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, and, uh, and, (laughs) 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 And so here you have all these sort of belligerent people that he works for, that work for him, but they're all sort of pounding things forward and getting the government moving again. And and another congressman said, it was like seeing an ox cart turned into an airplane uh, in Washington, (laughs) D.C. And and so Frances Perkins, she was famous for wearing a tricorn hat, just like Thomas Paine or any other founding father. She came from... Very, uh she came from a brickworks factory. I guess we don't really have brickwork factories. No, we must have them somewhere. Anyway, she came somewhere. from a brickworks factory at Herodin's and she had uh, some of her own ancestors were the founding fathers, but the thing that really struck me about was the advice her grandmother gave her, which is, if you go into a room and there are bodies, just keep walking. <laughs> so, so she wasn't exactly the high toady uh, uh, liberal snowflake that people <laughs> might try to paint her as. Uh, 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 her agenda, uh, she actually changed her life was witnessing the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire in New York City, which uh, happened actually around the corner from where I'm talking. And it was that people who made shirtwaists, which are a kind of blouse, Mm -hmm. had locked all the doors and all the windows because they were mad that some of the women working there had stolen some things. And so the fire broke out and everyone had to jump out the window to their death. And this completely changed uh, uh, New York State law headed by Francis Perkins to upend labor law, and she took all the ideas she developed from that incident and from her experience in New York and brought it with her to Washington and gave us things like Social Security.
0: That is amazing. There should be, I don't know if there's statues of her, but there should be more. I don't know if there's books of her, but there should be more. That, that's amazing. So. So you touched on this a second ago. So FDR has got all these programs. Libraries are being built. Hospitals are being built. Parks are being built. Dams are being built. And so by the time FDR runs for his second term, America's national income has more than doubled. Unemployment has dropped by half. So I'm guessing when he ran for a second time, it was, it was not, maybe not a cakewalk, but he knew he was going to win.
1: It, it was a tremendous landslide. It was the biggest landslide in American politics. And it completely uh, revamped the political face of the United States because it united the uh, what were then long, called Dixiecrats, the long-term Democrats of the Deep South, yeah. with working people across the country, with um, black people in the cities and with urban people. So he, he pretty much uh, ran the country. Uh, uh, and, and this is why he was able to do so much was because he had both houses of Congress in his corner.
0: Right. So, so if we could zoom out on on back to the international stage, dark times are coming. There's the Munich Agreement of 1938. The U.S. is far. From ready to defend itself or really help anyone else, and this is important because FDR does has he's smart enough not to wait for something like uh, Pearl Harbor. He knows he needs he knows enough about military uh, affairs to know that you start beefing up way before the shooting starts, and he gets this going not only for the jobs but also to help prepare the country in case Hitler should try something.
1: Well, the difference is that. FDR was a very sophisticated person in a lot of ways, which you wouldn't know from the way he acted, but, right. but, but he <laughs> could read German. So he read Mein Kampf, the Hitler autobiography, oh, wow. in mm-hmm. the original German, and then read the English translation, and became outraged that the English translation took out the crazier stuff in it. Oh, smart. Just, there was a philosopher, Hitler's favorite philosopher, said that it would be a really good idea to have a Jew's head on top of every telephone pole from uh, uh, Berlin to the North Sea, which is 500 miles. Wow. So, uh, uh, and really, really crazy, shocking things that they yeah. took out of the English translation. And, and uh, um, uh it, uh, Roosevelt also knew about such things as the growing German-American Bund, which was a Nazi-financed operation in the United States. It mm-hmm. was to a fan club, a Hitler fan club, basically in the right. United States. And they had a gathering in 1940 at a Madison Square Garden, where uh, 20,000 people attended, all dressed in swastikas, giving salutes. They put out a pamphlet called "George Washington, the First Nazi."
0: Oh my goodness. And, really,
1: and so you really see this uh, growing trend happening in the United States. Uh, in Chicago, there is so much of a German-American uh, presence that mm-hmm. the Chicago Board of Film Censors would censor films that were anti-Nazi and wow. let through films that were pro-Nazi. So one of the films was about how the Nazis had to invade Poland because the, the Polish were vicious, warlike people. And the Nazis had to invade just to defend themselves from the evil Poles.
0: Ah, preemptive uh, attack. If, mm-hmm. if, if I could, I'm going to take something from your book. So, um, Congress is, t- is asking questions of Army Air Corps Chief uh, General uh, Henry Hap Arnold. And they're asking about how many planes would it take to defend the Western Hemisphere from a Nazi invasion. And this is what shook me Arnold replied that, well, technically, on paper, I've got 2,755 planes. However, Only 300 of those planes can be deployed at this moment. And as you say in in your book, of those 300 planes, they were already obsolete compared to what the Germans and I think what the British had and maybe the Italians. So America's got a long way to go.
1: One thing I think that it's very difficult for people to imagine Mm -hmm. is how deteriorated our military was at this point, because not only was the Great Depression in operation, but, but uh, Americans were very bitter about how what they called the Great War, we call World War I had turned out, that the promises Woodrow Wilson had made about sort of the American Republican democracy spreading across the globe, none of that had come true. Uh, instead, we had the depression, we had the, the foreign governments owing us tens of billions of dollars in war debt that they were refusing to pay back. So mm-hmm. what they did was every year they tightened sort of anti-war legislation, and this was very popular, and they just starved the Army and Navy to death. So that in um, Norfolk, Virginia, which is now home to the world's largest naval base, right. uh, uh, the, the parks had signs saying, no dogs are sailors. <laughs> and uh, 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 if, if you were being trained by the Army to work in a tank battalion, frequently you would march. With your group of five, just out on the road, pretending that you had a tank, <laughs> right? Or, or if you were lucky, they would lease good humor ice cream trucks for you to pretend having a tank inside of, because the the country only had produced thirty three tanks for the entire country. Yes.
0: Uh, oh my goodness. Right. sorry.
1: And so, and then uh, they would be training snipers with broomsticks. It would, right. It would, to shoot a rifle pretending uh, with a broomstick. And but my favorite uh, moment is that they did they couldn't afford to train people to bomb with bombs. Right. Airplanes from airplanes. So so they used bags of flour as <clears throat> pretend bombs. And these are so popular they were known as Betty Crocker bombs. <laughs>
0: Well, you and I know the difference. You and I know that the main difference between a civilian and a soldier is practice, is rehearsal, is muscle memory. And they're not getting that because they literally do not have the equipment that they need. So so the Hitlerism is rising in Europe. America's got a long way to go. Whatever we're going to have to do, it's going to have to happen in a short amount of time. But, but if I can go back to the domestic stage for a second, and I want to quote from your book. You write before FDR the the citizens of the United States were new Yorkers and georgians texans and californians after FDR They were Americans and profound level of trust between the American public and their leaders in Washington, which, of course, is what a leader is supposed to do. You're supposed to build relationships. You're supposed to build trust. You're supposed to to work together. But having said that, there was a poll taken in 1939, um, uh, which the results would, would show that FDR still had a long way to go as far as the even getting the Americans to think about either intervening or helping on one side in this growing conflict that's happening in Europe.
1: Yes, it was an amazing period where many people in the United States decided that because we have the Pacific Atlantic Oceans, we don't really need to be worried about anything that happens anywhere outside the Western Hemisphere. Right. And and part of this uh, came from the idea that We just needed to protect our home and not worry about anything else. And many of the people who thought this were in the military. So uh, Roosevelt would say, we need to do this and this, and they would go, no, we don't. We just need to protect our, our Western Hemisphere. We don't need to worry about those things. So this went on for quite some time, and it actually became an organized force called America First, and what was so interesting about America First is that it started with college students right. who did not want to be sent into war overseas. Uh, so it really started out almost an exact mirror of the college protests against the Vietnam War, where right. they had a woman right, calling herself Pauline Revere, riding a white horse <sighs> across the country on behalf of peace. That, that was such a 1960s thing to me, <laughs> <laughs> right? And, it, yes. and it's happening in 1939. Um, and, and But the college students running the um, this organization are offered free rent in Chicago if they move to Chicago. Wow. So they do, and their America First is taken over by a more uh, politically active uh, people who are anti-FDR, and it becomes an anti-FDR political operation. Right. In fact, the whole idea of FDR using a backdoor to war to sneak Americans into fighting that he knew about Pearl Harbor and yada yada all comes from an operator out of America first. Uh, but but this is all sort of the background. The, the real players in this story mm-hmm. uh, turn out to be Franklin was about the most famous American in the world, and Charles Lindbergh, also the most famous American in the
0: world. Yes, and, yes. And the
1: Lindbergh story just fascinated me because I always thought he was a pretty great guy, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, a hero. Uh, and, and my, my family is all in the Air Force, so right. we always love every pilot, uh, but <laughs> not so much in 1940. So what happens is that um, Lindbergh is this huge hero uh, right. for. People who forgot he was the first person to fly nonstop between New York and Paris. Um, his pri- prior experience was being an airmail pilot. <laughs> he did it by himself, which was a crazy thing to do. And he did it using celestial navigation, which he didn't really know how to do. And, wow. and the whole thing just was the most incredible for America beaten down in the 1930s. This is the greatest thing that ever happened in the history of the world. Right. I mean, it was this incredibly looked up to hero, but he became so famous that people went crazy and the paparazzi were chasing him all the time. They Mm -hmm. would drive his car off the road, trying to get pictures. Uh, and, And then his son was kidnapped and murdered. Right. And, uh, Lindbergh decided that this was because of American society this happened, and he left to go to England. And in England, he falls in with a bunch of rich people who think the Nazis are going to take over and you need to get on that bandwagon. Right. So he takes a tour of the Luftwaffe, and he finds out that uh, they do this brilliant thing where they do like a circle of planes, so it makes it look like they've got a whole bunch of planes. But right. It says, Plane circling around and around. And they tell him, well, this engine can do this and we can do that here. And, that. and he announces to the world that the Nazis, if they want, they can destroy Prague and London and Paris at any minute. Wow! And no one else has an air force as good as theirs and we might as well all just give up right now and go home. <sighs> and this actually creates the situation where Britain and France appease Hitler with territory from Czechoslovakia. And, uh, uh, and it starts... Uh, Roosevelt on his campaign to boost the American aircraft industry and it has ripple effects across the world but then Hitler gives uh, Lindbergh a big medal the the German Eagle, and Americans start turning against him. So he decides that he wants to be a hero again. And the way to do that is to talk America out of going to war with Hitler. Mm-hmm. And he returns back to the United States and starts publicly speaking on the radio against what was called intervention, uh, doing anything to be involved with overseas wars now breaking out across Europe. Right. And he and Roosevelt trade dueling uh radio appearances and <laughs> yeah. what was called the great debate mm-hmm. and at the time it created this terrible national anger people were having brawls in the street over political wow. debate right but it also did an incredible thing first of all it was two opposing forces talking to each other and mm-hmm. having a debate which we don't have now right. And Americans could participate in this on the radio. They would just t- discuss it at the beauty parlor and the garage and the garage. And, and it was a really incredible experience of the American political experiment in action and working. So people could get involved in this discussion of national policy, know what was going on, take part in voting and public polling, and mm-hmm. really affect the future of the country. It was an, it's an amazing thing to see.
2: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
0: Right. That was one of my uh, more favorite parts of your book. And yeah, I don't know what the status of water coolers were back then, but you're right. I mean, the average American was talking to other Americans, you know, compare and contrast interventionalist with isolationist. And they were literally trying to determine, like you were saying, what kind of country are we going to be? But so while all this is going on, you know. FDR. I, I remember in your book that FDR actually had Lindbergh in his office. He tried to he tried the charm offensive, which did not take. And so it's going to get pretty ugly between these two. But at the end of the day, with FDR trying to stay positive, and Lindbergh bringing up race just you know a few times too many, uh, it, it's going to set him on a course where where Lindbergh can't win, and it's going to end bitterly for him. But I mean, I, I don't know if it was the kidnapping of his child. I don't know or the murder of his child. I don't know if it was his trip into Europe. But um, Lindbergh did not think much of other races, and I'm I, I'm not sure of his position on Jews, but that probably wasn't progressive either.
1: <laughs> well, it, uh, uh, no kidding. So first, uh, <laughs> it became it became apparent to people from uh, Lindbergh. Well, first, I want to back up and say that, please, uh, one of them. Most incredible stories I found is that when Lindbergh was first going to go on the radio, and FDR learned about this, he sent an intermediary to tell Lindbergh that if if the pilot didn't go on the radio, he would become secretary of the Air Force and have as much power in the cabinet as the secretaries of war and navy. Wow. And Lindbergh said no. So that, that uh, that's a little operator. That's MDR as political operator for me. Exactly. But, um, but Lindbergh starts revealing more of himself than he should. And this sort of sense of, of pride, of, of hubris, overcomes him. And right. so, in the speeches he gives, saying "Don't help Britain and France," and "Don't," and then "Don't help Britain when France is lost," and then "Don't help the Soviets when everything right. else is gone," uh, uh, he starts revealing himself. And what's incredible to me is that. After FDR wins his historic third election, Mm -hmm. Lindbergh is at an election party with a group of like-minded citizens, and he says, you know, the only answer is to take the vote away from black people, and if (sighs) the Jews think things are bad in Germany, wait till they see what happens to them here.
0: Right. So So, it's alienating.
1: And and he puts this in his book. I mean, it's not like he was sorry he said it. Right, right. That's so incredible. all of this becomes public and people start turning against Lindbergh again.
0: So uh, I'm glad you said that, yeah, because he kind of spoils it for himself. So here's FDR on one side. Here's Lindbergh and people that in, in uh, the America First Committee on the other side. But as time goes on between Hitler's cruel acts and Lindbergh's cruel statements, It's it's not so much that people wanted to go to war in America, but they certainly did not want to be associated with that. So things are starting to swing FDR's way. At the very least, the Americans are like, well, if these two sides are going to fight, we can't stop it. But we can still make money from it with the whole cash and carry program. So drip by drip, baby step by baby step, FDR is bringing everybody around to his way of thinking, and he does it so subtly, so passively, almost. He has the pa- he has the patience of whoever has <laughs> whoever's known as having the most patience. But I think that's what he needed to do to gently pull the country towards himself. It's really seeing a master
1: politician in yes. action to yes. see how he does this. That it's he never gets in front of the public. He always waits until it's clear that the public wants him to do something. Yes, brilliant. It. <laughs> and it's one little step after the next until finally we're ready for Hitler. And, right. and it takes three years, and it's and and all of this is happening before Pearl Harbor. And thank God it happened because boy, if we'd been pulled into Pearl Harbor, the state we were in in '38 uh, without him, it would yes. have been. A very different story, but um, uh, and, and you can see step by step him doing this, and I really loved writing about that mm-hmm. because it's, it's so hard to make legislation interesting. So. Yes,
0: yes. <laughs> so, but when it when it really matters, it becomes interesting. So right. Well, I'm I'm glad you touched on that because when I finished your book. I better understood that it is possible for the government and the private sector to work hand in hand, especially during a crisis, uh, and they can come together and put all bickering aside and could, because there's a larger goal. Maybe something like the survival of the state, but there's a larger goal that they, they could uh, – they could work together. Uh, can you give us an idea of how well that worked out? You mentioned production of uh, planes, uh, the lack of production of tanks, but eventually America's gonna bring in some some big companies like Chrysler and like others, and they're, able, they're gonna be able to produce staggering amounts of what is needed for America and our allies during the war. Well, the, one
1: of the things I really love about being a historian and writing sort of mm-hmm. books general public is bringing back to life people who are forgotten. Right. And sort of like the unsung heroes. Everyone knows about this guy and that guy, but they don't know about the businessmen who came to Washington and ran this and, and really did a great job. And the yeah. first was a guy named Bill Knudsen, mm-hmm. who, had, uh, who was a first generation immigrant from Denmark. He arrived uh, from Copenhagen with thirty dollars in his pocket because and he had that much wow. money because he had engineered the first Danish bicycle belt for two. <laughs> uh, and he arrives and first he works on the docks in the Bronx, which is a rough crowd. Right. Uh, but he works his way up and he ends up at a horseless carriage operation <laughs> where he and another guy there invent a new type of alloy, which they sell to Ransom Olds, a.k.a. Oldsmobile for hmm. uh, uh, brake linings, and to Henry Ford, a.k.a. the Model T for everything else. And Henry Ford becomes so enamored with this company that he buys it and ships it to Highland Park, his wow. operation in Michigan. And, and um, uh, uh, Knudsen rises and rises and rises in the company and becomes president of Ford. Then he and Henry have a falling out, as Henry was wont to do. And right. he ends up at GM. And what Knudsen did at GM was... Exactly analogous. I mean, one of the wild things is I started off writing a little Arsenal of Democracy book and ended up writing this <laughs> echo of modern times. It's almost disturbing. So, yes. so for example, uh, at this time, Silicon Valley was alive and well and living in Detroit. The state of <laughs> the art, business genius, tech loving people were making cars. and. Uh, Knudsen, what he did was he became head of Chevrolet, which was a money losing division at GM then. Mm. Actually, all their cars were money losing. <laughs> anyway, uh, money losing division at GM. And what he did was he got information back from the uh, dealers and the repair services to get more information about his customers, oh. just like uh, Facebook and Google do now, following us around everywhere we go. Uh, yes. So, uh, <clears throat> and he learned that people wanted new styles and new colors every year and he introduced that before right. that the same you bought the same car every year <laughs> so he came up with that and and he developed a reputation for having the entire industrial power of the United States in his head yes so when roosevelt was looking for a guy to head up uh, the production operation and coordinate the American response to fascism, he hired Knudsen, and Knudsen came to Washington. And and probably my my favorite story about Knudsen is uh, uh, he uh, uh, has a meeting with a purchase av- agent from England, and right. the purchase agent says, we need tanks. And, and at this point, America had produced 33 tanks in wow. its entire life. Right. Uh, so Knudsen needed to fix that. So a guy from uh, press relations comes in to see him and Newton says, Do you know how to make tanks? And the guy goes, No. He goes, Well, I won't be seeing much of you. And, 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 Get out of here. Yeah. And then he calls the head of Chrysler, a guy named KT Keller, and he goes, Keller, it's Newton. I need your help. What is it, Bill? What do you need? Well, I need you to make tanks. And Keller says, I'm sure we can do that. What is a tank? <laughs> Just show me a picture of something. Uh, So so Newton arranged for Keller and uh, Chrysler engineers to tour the Arsenal tank factory, uh, um, the the United States Army tank factory. And they get all sorts of ideas, and they build a tank factory in Detroit that outproduces one factory that outproduces every tank the Nazis make.
0: Wow.
1: And that's the power of America in a nutshell.
0: Yeah, and that goes back to what we said at the very beginning where trucks win. If you can make that many planes, that many uh, carriers, that many battleships, I mean – Yeah, it's amazing. Like you said, that's just one factory. And and of course, we don't have the time to cover it here today. But you really emphasize that the whole one of the great advantages of the private sector and the government coming together is you've got all of these guys who've got all of this literally down to the to the assembly floor experience and knowledge. And you've got FDR, FDR can wave his hand, he can wave his cigar, he can sign whatever paperwork he wants, but someone's actually got to do the work. And the partnership is what really impressed me. And it almost made me, you know, it made me nostalgic. I wish we could go back to that today, but things have changed. But but during that moment when there was a huge crisis, the two sides came together. And I think it was, I can't remember, was it Morgenthau or somebody said, or maybe it was the uh, secretary of war who said, "I don't mind them making a profit off of this, just not too much." You know, let's let's reel it in. Let's be realistic. But then you list all the numbers of all of the planes, the tanks that these companies were able to make, and like you said, it is the uh, the arsenal of democracy. It is that impressive.
1: I couldn't get over it. You would you would put out these numbers, and you would think this can't be right. I must exactly. have spent a month double checking these figures <laughs> because it just it just seemed impossible. And then I came across a quote from a German prisoner of war as he was marched. Uh, as he was captured in Europe, and he said, I know how you won this war. You just got all this stuff and dropped it on us. <laughs> because, and, and you look at pictures of Normandy, and, and you almost can't see where the beach is because there's so many uh, uh, boats and troops and stuff going out of the right. shoreline. It's just a solid black line of American stuff. And in fact, when the when uh, the uh, uh, battalion of, of uh, uh, of uh, Navy vessels showed up, the first vessels showed up at Normandy. They mm-hmm. created a solid black line on the horizon. Wow, so many ships. That, uh, so, yeah, you, and, you, and that's why I sort of end the book with Normandy because you really see the arse of democracy in action. But there are so many great stories. So uh, another one of my favorites was that when um, uh, Newton's successor Bill Nel- uh, Donald Nelson, who mm-hmm. was head of Sears Roebuck, uh, shows up, Uh, he and the army immediately have a fight because they've lost Czechoslovakia and they've lost all these other places, which are the source of of horn that the army used for its buttons. (laughs) It said, I've got a really good place that can make all the plastic buttons you need, and the army said, no, it has to be horn or ivory buttons. They couldn't couldn't make uniforms fast enough relying on those (laughs) buttons, and they had to talk about it. And some of the fights that go on between the civilians and, and the businessmen and the bureaucrats and the military is, is just fantastic. It's a, I really enjoyed this book a lot.
0: Right. No, I absolutely love the details. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave those for the listeners to get it themselves. But if I could give one stat before my my next question, you wrote in the final days of 1943, U.S. shipyards were launching eight uh, eight aircraft carriers a month. A month. I mean, they could have just spit out. You know, I know at some point they stopped because they're like, whoa, whoa, we got enough. But when you can produce eight aircraft carriers a month, uh, I mean, you're going to win. It's just a matter of how and when and, and where. But when you can produce things like that, and like you said, it was just America coming together, putting everything aside. And when we do that, we can do incredible things.
1: Uh, here's probably my favorite my favorite lineup, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. Normally the Navy is sort of left out of this side of the story because right. the Navy, is sort of the Pacific Theater, and the Army's the the uh, Atlantic Theater. But so, but here's a giving uh, grips to the Navy, mm-hmm. a nation that started at Pearl Harbor with 32 shipyards ended the war with 131, having produced, alongside thousands of cargo vessels, a naval version of the 12 Days of Christmas. Two large cruisers, nine small aircraft carriers, 10 heavy cruisers, 10 battleships, 18 fleet aircraft carriers, 33 light cruisers, 110 escort carriers, 211 submarines, 358 destroyers, 504 destroyer
0: escorts, and 82,028 landing craft. Oh, my. Yeah. And, and it's the magic of the landing craft that made D-Day and things like that possible. So we gear up for war. It puts people back to work. People, people start to trust the system again. But um, so and again, you, you, you show how that beautifully unfolds in the book. But one of my last questions, unless you want to stick around for another 10 hours, but I wouldn't do that to you, is about, <laughs> is about FDR's wife, Eleanor. I have four daughters, and I'm always on the lookout for role models for them. And boy, did I strike gold here. If you could tell us a little bit about this incredible lady, how she came into her own. And and again, just like her husband, she was an example of that can-do attitude.
1: Well, I came into this book thinking, like many people, that Mm -hmm. Eleanor Roosevelt was sort of this dithery, do grandma-type woman, and instead ended up thinking she's a ninja. <laughs> she is. She, <laughs> she was. really is incredible. Uh, what One of the great moments, we remember this in New York history, actually, but one of the incredible moments is, long after FDR has, di- has died, right. his son, FDR Jr., wants to run for governor of New York, and and he loses, and Lelloner finds out one politician stood in his way, a guy named Carmine DeSapio. So, mm-hmm. Eleanor launches a clean-up Albany campaign uh, and drives DiSapio out of political life for the rest of his life. He never gets another political position ever after she does that. Then when her um, her, uh, uh, cousin runs for, uh, one of uh, Ted Roosevelt Jr. runs Mm -hmm. for president, she follows him around in a giant paper mache teapot to remind people of the teapot dome scandal because... (laughs) Ted Jr. hadn't supported her husband when he was running for office. So oh. uh, she's just is incredible. But my absolute favorite thing I discovered about Eleanor was right. that well, during her life, now she's very famous for maybe having a, a relationship with another woman and how much of that was really romantic and how much of it was physical. People yeah. are arguing about it right now. the same thing was going on with her bodyguard when she was alive everyone can assume she and this guy were having an affair she was named as the other woman when the guy got divorced Mm -hmm. the letters between the two of them vanished in that divorce decree right and my favorite part is uh after an assassination attempt on franklin Eleanor's advisors insisted she be surrounded by security all the time when they entered the White House. Right. And she said, no, I don't want anybody. Instead, her bodyguard, Earl Miller, taught her how to shoot, and she <laughs> always had a gun in her purse.
0: She was a pass, a pistol-packing mama. I love that about You're her. She, she So she wasn't some dainty sit-in-the-corner. I mean, she had her own ines- initiatives. I think she had a newsletter, a letter, a magazine, or something. Like but she was pushing the envelope when it came to a lot of progressive issues. It
1: was really amazing. That The other great story about her is that there's this very famous cartoon of two coal miners looking out in the darkness, and one says, oh my goodness, look, it's Mrs. Roosevelt making fun of her gallivanting around the country visiting the poorest parts it was so absurd to think that the first lady would go into a terrible dirty coal mine where only men went and (laughs) and this was a big source of of humor so eleanor roosevelt went to a coal mine visited with people there discussed how the new deal had helped them with their schools and wrote about why are people criticizing me for being a curious woman wow she was not (laughs) afraid (laughs) Yeah, pretty much the biggest fu any first lady <laughs> has ever done.
0: <laughs> yes, that's who she was, and she only got more bold and more brave because she saw the changes that were needed. But the other, and just one more thing about her, and I did—I don't think I appreciated this until I read your book. She was her husband's spy. He sends her to all all over the world during the war to gather information. I mean, she was amazing.
1: Yeah, it, since Roosevelt was paralyzed, he developed his own spy network. Right, and they're all. We know uh, there's the head of the OSS. There's very many CBS network journalists, uh, but the lead spy was Eleanor, and 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 uh, FDR liked to proudly announce to people, "You know, my missus really gets around." <laughs>
0: <laughs> she went all over and she brought back information that, like you said, he needed he needed an unbiased source, and he got it from her. So, I I. By the time I got to the end of your book, I was thinking of them more as partners than a married couple because, yes, they were married, but then he was unfaithful. And she she got her, she got on with her life. And you have to admire her for that.
1: Well, well, before I go, I have to tell you what may be my favorite story in all of World War II, okay. which is when Roosevelt insisted that she visit the injured and dying in the Pacific Theater, right. which was an incredible, arduous thing to do with that time she traveled across the whole of the pacific theater she wow. met with 400 000 injured men and uh, it was really an incredible thing to go through especially yeah. because uh, various military people did not want to have to deal with her doing this right uh, it meant having to take uh, manpower away from fighting the war to secure her and her travels and they right. really didn't want to do it but she insisted and Every time she entered a hospital ward, they would have to make an announcement because it was only men in the ward, right. but a woman was coming in, so people would cover up. Sure. And Eleanor had this terrible feeling that the men in the ward were thinking that, you know, Rita Hayworth or Benny Grable <laughs> or some <laughs> coming in, and here was Dowdy Eleanor Roosevelt, and she felt really bad about that, oh. but she had an incredible impact yes. to such an extent that Admiral Halsey looked into why this woman, he said she had the greatest impact of morale of anyone who came through the Pacific Theater. And he wanted to understand why. And finally, he came across an injured man, a dying man. And he said, well, what was it? What was it? And the man said, well, she was something we hadn't seen in so long, an American mother.
0: Oh, yes. I, I wrote that down. I will never forget when I, oh, the tears came. I mean, it was amazing because a lot of these kids are like 17, 18 years old and they're, yeah. from, they're from a farm in Kansas and they haven't seen, oh, it just, oh, it, it, it got me. So I just want to let the listeners know that we have barely scratched the surface. We haven't talked about Lend-Lease, Cash and Carry, Destroy for Bases, Edward R. Murrow. Uh, we touched on FDR's use of the radio. M&M's The Candy, uh, Churchill and FDR's <laughs> special but not always smooth relationship. FDR wanting The End of Empires. FDR's Four Universal Freedoms, uh, Higgins boat, Baby Flat Top, which I I think I didn't know before I read your book, Norma Jean, aka Marilyn Monroe, uh, the artificial landing piers for D Day, which goes back to what the Americans were building before the war. You're right, the industrial experience that we got in the 1930s made such a difference. Uh, FDR going to Yalta. We, it's all, all that is in the book, but we, we didn't cover that. So there's a lot out there you should check out. I do want to end with a quote from your book. FDR says this, the day before he dies, he says, Today, we are faced with the preeminent fact that if civilization is to survive, we must cultivate the science of human relationships, the ability of all peoples of all kinds to live together and work together in the same world at peace. And I just again, the tears came, but I wanted to give you the last word. Out of all of your research, what is something that we should never forget about FDR what he tried to do, and the times that he lived in.
1: Uh, it's very simple. If you've got the right guy in the White House, Americans can do almost anything they want. We right. really have unlimited potential. And for anyone who feels sorry about the state of the world today, read this book, you're going to feel so much better because <laughs> yes. it all turned
0: out great for me. Because we're obviously capable of so much, but, but you're right, you need the right leader pulling the right way and bringing people together instead of tearing them down. So, uh, Mr. Nelson, this book was, uh, uh, it was so much fun to read. I learned so much. I want to thank you for it. For the listeners, again, it's V is for Victory, Franklin Roosevelt's American Revolution, and the Triumph of World War II. Mr. Nelson, thank you very much for your time today, sir.
1: It's been great, Ray. I so appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Ohio.